You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining us. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump is running a so-called law and order campaign, promising Americans he's going to make them safer and more secure if he's president. Trump's aggressive stance on maintaining law and order is not new. In the 1980s, he took out a full-page ad in four major newspapers in New York City with, quote, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police, splayed across the top. The ad was placed after a rape in Central Park that horrified residents of that city and national audiences as well. Five young men, boys really, known as the Central Park Five, were convicted of the crime after they made false confessions. Years later, they were exonerated based on DNA evidence. The Central Park Five later sued for wrongful conviction. Detroit attorney Bill Goodman was one of the lawyers who assisted with that suit. I recently spoke to him about the details of the case and the role the media played in the story. Well, in April of 1989, a jogger, uh, a woman named Miss Melly, I think it was Trish Melly, was assaulted, viciously assaulted while jogging in Central Park in New York City. Um, there were a lot of young uh, kids out, boys, a lot of young boys out in the park that evening, and it was in the northern part of Central Park. So uh, a lot of the the kids who were out there were minority kids, African American boys and. Uh, Latino boys uh, and uh, Hispanic kids. So uh, when she was viciously assaulted, the police swept through that part of Central Park and picked up any young kid that they could, and they focused their attention on five of them. Four of them were black, one of them was Hispanic. And um, those kids were interrogated intensely, alone, in ways that, that no modern police department uh, would hold its head up above it, you know, hold its, could, could sit up straight and look you in the eye and say, this is good police procedure now. They were, they were interrogated alone. Their parents were told that uh, they would be released after, the, after they were done speaking with them. And the kids were told, once you tell us what we want to hear, we will let you out. And they, in effect, they got all five of them to basically confess to being a part of this vicious rape and sodomy that occurred to this young woman in Central Park. In some way, I was there, I saw it, I helped, I took her, I held her clothes, I held her down, I, I penetrated her, all of those kinds of things uh, they got these kids to admit to after suggesting to them that that's what they wanted to hear and t telling them then you'll go home. Well, the fact is that all five of them were charged with some version of either attempted murder or assault or sexual assault or uh, rape. And um, all five were tried uh, over the period of the next year, and all five were convicted on the strength of these confessions. And a couple years after that, um, the person who actually committed the rape saw one of these young kids. They were between the ages of 14 and 17. Uh, they were, you know, and he was already serving a life sentence, and he could not stomach the fact that his crime had resulted in these young kids being in prison, in, in major prisons in New York State. And so he then confessed to having committed the Central Park jogger rape and, and, and attack and assault. 
and it turned out that his DNA happened to match the samples that were taken from the jogger. So it was pretty much confirmation that what he was saying was true and that these confessions for these young kids were wrong. And it took about 10 years, and finally they were released, and then they brought a lawsuit against the city of New York and the cops who were involved in, in these in extracting these confessions. And my law firm uh, was called Moore and Goodman, and um, in New York City, I was um, practiced law privately for about a year and a half. There was was the lead firm on that case, and my partner John Moore did a great deal of the really important work. on the lawsuit. And in fact, one of our employees at that time, paralegal named Sarah Burns, eventually made a movie about the Central Park jogger case called the Central Park Five, which is an amazing documentary film, and I recommend it to anyone. Uh, one of the things that stands out about what you're describing happened to these five young people in 1989 is how similar it sounds to the things that we are witnessing and seeing in police departments in the way they deal with African-Americans and African-American youth today. I don't know that a lot of people think about that having been the case in 1989 the same as it is in 2015 or 2016. You mean that it's still going on? That it's the same. It, the, 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 the we recognize sort of, the injustice of it. The, the, the parallels. When you see cases like this, when we hear about cases like this, it's black kids. It's Latino kids. It's Arab American kids who most often are on the, the, the wrong end of it. Right. And I think that I, I think that Part of it is just straight out uh, 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 articulate race. I mean, recognize clear, overt racism, and part of it's structural, and part you know, and part of it's systemic. Part of the fact is that those kids are particularly intimidated in a in a police setting, and and are are far more malleable, I think, because they have much less privileged and much many fewer rights. Uh, one of the things that happens after the Central Park Five case sort of surfaces and these five young people are on trial is that Donald Trump, who's the the Republican candidate for president here in 2016, takes out a full page ad in four major New York newspapers All four major New York days. calling for the condemnation of uh, the Central Park Five and calling for a return to the death penalty. I mean, the most extreme kind of uh, criminal justice we have. And, and he has continued to, to uh, insist on their guilt uh, in his usual ignorant uh, manner, knowing nothing about the facts, but said, well, I still think they're guilty because I wanted them killed. And who knows, he probably still wants them killed. He's, uh, you know, it's kind of bloodthirsty. But more importantly, I think it fuels racism. It, it's the fact that this uh, wealthy, privileged American is allowed in, in the largest city in the United States to publish a full-page ad in four newspapers saying, kill these kids, which is what he was saying. Yeah. Uh, kill these black kids and this Hispanic kid. Just kill them. Uh, let's loose, unleashes the kind of, of emotions and racism that, that we need to uh, fight, fight back against. And it's, it's revolting is the only word I can say. That also raises the question of the role that the media played in New York at that time in this case. I mean, not just in terms of uh, the ad uh, 
that Donald Trump took out, but the coverage of the case too drove public opinion about these kids, didn't it? Yes, and the and the and the ad was sensational. The of course the the fact that this was a sexual assault and that these kids were all over it was was another sensational aspect of it, and I think it fueled again another element of racism. It, it, the, I think it was the New York Post that developed this idea of these children out in the park quote wilding unquote right this, that this, term this activity of wilding which sounds like animals you know and, and I think really fuels and is based on nothing other than racism. You, you talk about the role that, that, that race played here. By the time you get into the case, though, it's a question of uh, recompense, uh, of that's remuneration. Right. That's right. We also, you know, that's, that's freighted with race, too, in this country. Whenever you talk about that idea of you have wronged me and you may owe me something in exchange for that wrong, you can't take that out of the context of slavery and reparations either, right? Well, I think it's a, it's a, you know, yes, there are clear parallels between those ideas. I hadn't, I never quite put it together that way, but it's interesting to me. I think that's right. I, I, I have to say, yes, I'm nodding my head. And that, and that pushback against the idea of that is similar, right? I mean, you, you, you bring up reparations in this country and I, I, you know, fully admit that the complication that's that's associated with that. How do you figure your way through all of that to uh, a just end? Uh, but but you have that same kind of pushback. Uh, what I remember reading about when there was this question of of recompense for these 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 kids, there was this pushback that well, you know, maybe they were wronged, maybe they weren't, but the idea that they maybe owed something sends people into a different kind of space, I think. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I think that money translates into status and power, and why uh, elevate anyone who is young, poor, black, or Latino into a, a position of privilege? That's yeah. right. Yeah. What, what, what happened to your clients? Where are they now? I, I have not. I left New York in 2007, so I have not been uh, in touch with... Uh, any of those, uh, any of them, but I hear that they're all doing well in one fashion or another. So um, even though they lost, what was it? How much oh, of the? Sometimes up to nine years. Nine years. Seven, wow. Eight, nine years. Yeah. Wow. Some there was a fourteen-year-old in the in the group. I mean, just awful. Um, but I do. I have heard uh, from uh, our paralegal at the time that uh, they're they're doing well. All right, coming up next, we're going to end the work week with a little music from Cuban pianist and composer Aldo Lopez Galivan, his brother Ilmar Galivan, and the Harlem Quartet. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Mm-hmm. 